All right, everyone, welcome back to the next episode of Christian History and Ideas with myself, John Coleman, and Dr. Nirmal Das. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you, John. Great to be here. We continue in this recording on this Ember Friday in the autumn. We consider actually something that comes up very often in the liturgy when you have an ear out for, and that's Jerusalem, both physical Jerusalem and spiritual Jerusalem. And on our last episode, which I and Dr. Das beseech you to watch before you watch this one, uh, we talked about the development of these ideas of, of Jerusalem becoming Zion, becoming, you know, this very spiritual concept and the people of God becoming uh, not completely linked to the flesh, we'll say, kind of this this much larger concept. And we get into all of that very interesting and, as we discussed, unique in human history um, development of ideas and um religious sentiments and even outside of of one's own appraisal of christian claims that the, the what happens with the hebrews into the church the early church the new israel this concept regardless of one's own um response to that is something that has massive impacts on human consciousness on on um the human mind and and the history of that development. So check that out and thank you for checking in in this episode. Dr. Das, we left off with a chronological um, treatment of things. And I thought our text, uh, we like to kick these shows off with a text and uh, actually so far, I think they've all been scriptural. And so we'll keep up the, the tradition here. Um, we'll start with Acts 12, uh, verse two, with a figure we, we talked about last time, and that's St. James. So um, Herod had James, the brother of John, killed by the sword. And when he saw that it was pleasing to the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So we'll take it from there with James, the early bishops, and the revolts. Great. Um, so what we should, uh, I think, uh, begin discussing is this idea of um, how Jerusalem is becoming a place of contention not simply of uh, ideas, spirituality, faith, and but also politically. And I think the political problems are the result of the changeover in the faith system um, because it's creating all kinds of unforeseen tensions that didn't really exist uh, before the rise of Christianity. And therefore, <clears throat> this uh, Christianity is uh, in the mix is causing all kinds of ferment, all kinds of upheavals uh, in the way things are now seen. Uh, because this is a radical new idea being introduced to the human mind. And its consequences, of course, are also radical. And what people do with that radicalism is the, is the issue, which leads to uh, violence, as we will look at, uh, and contention. And you can even see that outside of Acts chapter 12, you can see that um, that tension is, is becoming more and more physical, uh, less words and more hands, as, as you might say. Um, when you get to Acts chapter 19, uh, for instance, when Paul is going on his, his uh, journeys there, his three journeys, 
there's a point where 40 Jews take a vow not to eat or drink until they kill him. So this is this is a, a much more, uh, shall we say, tense situation than we saw at the beginning of Acts when they were, you know, more or less content to, to beat him up a bit and then send him out. And oh, no, this, this is getting serious. Uh, this is now um, serious business for sure, uh, because now they're killing people and it's going to, uh, well, actually, they're now they're killing Christians. And this is only going to become, um, it's a practice that's going to expand into what we call the age of the martyrs with the Romans. And Dr. Doss, what is uh, taking our discussion, which is um, at this point, uh, we'll say an in-house discussion um, amongst the, the children of Jacob um, with, with a few feelers towards a Gentile or two here or there, but it's pretty incipient outside of just the intellectual discussions in the Council of Jerusalem. But let us put our a discussion thus far within the larger context of um, politics in that world and particularly the tensions of the Hebrews with the occupying power being, of course, Rome. Yes, uh, let's let's do that. So Rome is going to um, uh, fight um, two Jewish wars they're known as or Judean wars, um, as, which is a more proper way of saying it, uh, wars in Judea. Um, and these wars are, of course, are going to determine uh, the, con you know, the, the outcome is going to determine what happens to this place and to the people and so forth. Um, what's going on here, <clears throat> you know, from a larger perspective, we'll, we'll avoid getting into the nitty gritty of things because we've discussed these in other uh, shows as well. Um, but what is going on here at this very moment is, um, and we're talking about the first century mainly, uh, and this is again immediately, immediately after Jesus. So after Jesus' resurrection, this is what's going on in the Roman world, in that part of the world, I should say, in that part of the Roman world. Um, and it's questionable, uh, and just a little footnote, whether the Romans are an quote-unquote occupying force, uh, because um, Romans never really occupy the place. Uh, remember, they are invited uh, as, uh, as uh, allies by the powers that be in Jerusalem, uh, sorry, in, in uh, uh, what is uh, Israel. Um, so they're not, they don't see themselves as occupiers either. They only respond to requests. So all those violence, violences, you know, acts of violence and so forth that are taking place are not, um, Roman uh, created. They're not Romans saying, okay, I'm going to stomp everybody out. Um, rather, they're requests sent through official channels to the senator in Rome <clears throat> saying, can you please help us with this guy who's being a serious problem? Uh, and because remember, um, Judea is a client state of Rome, which means that they have, they're like the United States in, you know, in, uh, uh, in their independent. Um, uh, organizations, independent uh, um, um, political entities that that somehow are allied to a overall larger structure. So think of your state uh, and its obligations to Washington and Washington's obligations to you, but the two are not, uh, you know, the same. So, for example, hence the, all the violence that we're seeing in all the various states and people are saying, well, why doesn't Washington do something? Well, someone has to ask Washington to do something. 
Uh, you can't just transcend in the army and say, okay, I'm going to take over. That's exactly what is happening with the Romans and the, all their client states. Uh, this is the kind of relationship. <clears throat> so there is no way they can just march into any place um, and take over. They're not that kind of a, uh, an empire. Uh, so they're very much a relationship between a client state and uh, 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 Senate, uh, the Roman Senate. Uh, but anyway, that aside, uh, what is going on in 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 Judea um, is that there's a lot of discontent among the various uh, Judaic factions, uh, uh, Judean factions, uh, infighting. Uh, so all this infighting is having serious political ramifications because the majority of the, uh, the people in Judea do not want problems. They like the Romans. They want to get along because it's prosperity and peace and all that. Uh, <clears throat> but there are certain types who say, no way, uh, we have to do something else and we're, you know, um, we're Jews or we're this and that. Um, and to be very honest, historians have a very difficult time understanding why these revolts happened. Um, there's all kinds of explanations given. Usually they're, you know, the easiest to understand are one of nationalism, but that seems to be the least of the problems. Um, the other problems seem to be dominant when we look at the actual history. So, like I said, I mean, rambling aside, that said, um, what we have are two revolts against the Romans uh, at this time uh, in the first century uh, and the second. Um, and these, of course, are going to be having some serious uh, ramifications. The first revolt, um, which ends in uh, 70 AD, uh, ends in the total raising, i.e. bulldozing of the entire city of Jerusalem. Um, and then they have to rebuild again. And by, at this time, the second temple is destroyed. <clears throat> so second temple Jerusalem, uh, second temple Judaism is now dead and gone. Um, Judaism will have to rebuild its faith. Uh, it's it's gone. So it was fo focused on the uh, on the temple, and they got rid of it. And um, because of doing by doing that, the very focal point of Roman, oh, sorry, of Judaic uh, Hebrew contention is now no, no longer there. Um, and of course, um, you know things go on, and uh, people resettle and so forth. But the temple is gone. And now the, now the discussion among uh, the Hebrew people is, should we bring back the temple? Should we build it up again? And some people are saying yes, some people are saying no. We're happy with the, with the Roman way of things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> and around 135 AD, we have what we know as the, the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, and um, perhaps, John, you might want to give us a context of that, and then we'll look at the, um, the, you know, the more nitty gritty of it. Well, this was something we can see uh, shadows or, or foreshadowing of even in the Acts of the Apostles, where we consider the figure of Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin talks about this long list of messiahs and messiah figures and claimants and so forth, and fathers were. Uh, armed messiahs, shall we say, and that tradition, if we can speak of such, um, that continued through you know the, the subsequent century. And so Barkovka was this this figure who, who claimed to be the messiah, and 
did not receive, as you might imagine, much reception from the early church at this point, but did make feelers out to those communities. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, if you can just quickly add um, a footnote, um, uh, you know, Bar Kokhba um, is actually proclaimed a messiah by other people. He sees himself as a revolutionary or revolt guy. He's revolting against the Romans. Um, so uh, historically, we don't have any indication, just to be clear, uh, where he called himself a messiah, personally. And after this, the, you know, the revolt is ultimately put down. But what this represents is the last real push of, of that uh, violent uh, Sicari, that, that that brand of of um, nationalism, if we can use that modern anachronism to it, um, but Jerusalem is is um, bulldozed once again, and and this this really sets things up um, for subsequent Christian history because, as you know, Doctor Das and I were talking about Jerusalem at this point is and and the church is you know completely severed from um from jerusalem and and this creates in early christianity a situation which is very different than later islam where you have both this spiritual center and the administrative center being in this case ecca but that doesn't happen with christianity where things shift towards rome and to a certain extent antioch as we talked about and alexandria and later much later constantinople Yes, that's right. Um, and <clears throat> what happens during this process, some very important things happen as well, as, as you've mentioned, John, is that um, when this revolt happens in 135 AD, um, uh, who is the, I think it's um, Tinius Rufus is the, is the governor uh, of Judea at this time. Um, and in, in Hebrew tradition, he's known as, you know, uh, a horrible person and all that sort of thing. I forget the term that they use, but um, uh, but he, he's he's uh, not well remembered. Um, but what's going on here is that um, Rome is imposing um, decrees or probably suggestions by other uh, you know suggested uh, um, um, other Jews who are suggesting this is that a lot of the practices of Judaism need to be toned down, i.e., most importantly, banning circumcision. <clears throat> so Hadrian, uh, who is the emperor at this time, bans circumcision. And whether this is simply done from the top down um, is questionable, probably because within the Hellenistic Jewish uh, uh, community, uh, circumcision is already a big problem. Uh, people don't want to do it, and you know there are even um, records of of specialized doctors who would undo a circumcision, um, and uh, you know they had all these kinds of uh, problems and procedures that they were looking at. Um, so um, the Bar Kokhba revolt happens because of these decrees. Um, whether again they're not, we don't know if they're coming from Rome and they're not being imposed. This is probably, um, uh, you know, something that the Jews themselves want. Um, and uh, Simon, uh, his name is Simon Bar Kosiba, um, and Bar Kokhba, by the way, is a term given by um, uh, Rabbi Akiva, 
and Bar Kokhba means the son of the star, which means he's the Messiah. So it's, Bar, uh, it's, it's Rabbi Akiva who calls him the Messiah. But uh, interestingly enough, a few years, few years later, after Bar Kokhba dies, um, uh, another one of, uh, uh, actually a student of Rabbi Akiva's, uh, I think, uh, what's his name? Um, Jose Ben Halafta um, calls him um, 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 Bar Koziba. And Bar uh, Koziba, Koziba in Jewish means the liar. Um, so we don't have a universal, you know, uh, acclamation of him as a messiah. Only one person uh, uh, called him a messiah, and that's Bar Ak a Rabbi Akiva. All the other Jews did not like Bar Kokhba. <clears throat> I mean, yes, there are, you know, nationalism now and the state of Israel, you know, highlights all this sort of thing. But at the time, he is not a well-favored man. He's not someone everyone says, he, you know, says he's a great guy. And the only reason why he got support uh, from people is because he said, if you don't join me, I'm going to send out my troops and kill you. Uh, so people would go around stabbing everybody if you didn't join up with um, with his revolt. Um, so that's how he got disciples or just, you know, followers, I should say. Uh, so he's not a big time, you know, um, uh, you know, popular person. So this idea of nationalism is kind of easily defeated because no one is following this guy unless they're forced into it, i.e. the threat, threat of death. Um, and even afterwards, his, his memory is reviled. Um, he's called the liar. And this is the Talmudic uh, way of looking at the bar, uh, at Simon uh, Bar uh, Koziba, um, because they call him Koziba, which is the liar. So, um, you know, what happens very quickly is that he leads a very effective revolt um, against uh, in the Roman, uh, you know, Roman forces. And he does establish a little city for himself. He becomes king or prince, they call him, a Nasi uh, in, in Hebrew. He calls himself a Nasi uh, and, uh, or Nasi, uh, and um, uh, becomes a king for three years until the until the finally everyone's had enough of this guy. And the, <laughs> the Jews say, can you get rid of him, please? And so in come the Roman uh, army, uh, in comes, you know, and they, and they get rid of the guy. Um, but at this time, <clears throat> There is a problem among both the Judeans and the Romans as to how do we neutralize all this stuff. Um, and the best way is to Romanize everything, Hellenism, uh, bring in Hellenism, i.e. the Hellenistic vein in Judaism wins out um, and says, let's just be Hellenistic, let's be modern, as we might say in our time, uh, and let's put all that behind us and let's move forward. And so it's, it's at this time that um, uh, Jerusalem changes its name is is you know no longer Jerusalem but as you mentioned in the first part it becomes Irina uh, Capitolina um, and did you want to you know, briefly mention what that means the name or, or uh, Actually, yeah, a good question what does that mean Dr. Das I don't know oh uh, okay uh, very quickly then uh, let's uh, you know uh, quickly look at this uh, when we talk about Irina Capitolina we're talking about uh, the name of Jerusalem from 135 onwards. Uh, and I think um, it's 324, I think. Yes, 324 AD is when it's reverted back to Jerusalem by, by, um, um, uh, uh, by Constantine. Yes, Constantine's degree. Uh, I think it's 324. Um, so it's, it's brought back to Jerusalem. For about 300 or 200 years, um, 
the name of Jerusalem disappears from history. You know, it's, it's only Aelia um, Capitolina. Um, and Aelia, the first part is from Hadrian's family name, Aelius. Uh, it's a, it's a Gaines, uh, Roman Gaines. Uh, I think it's a Gaines. It could be a plebeian name. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, it's, it's a family name. Let's, let's be safe. And Capitolina, of course, refers to um, uh, uh, Jupiter Capitolinus, um, which is, of course, Zeus or the god Zeus, uh, uh, Jupiter. So it's at this at the at the place where the temple stood, the Jewish temple stood. They erect a temple to Jupiter Capitolinus, uh, hence uh, the the name Aelia, uh, a city of of Aelius, the you know the family name, uh, where it, where the temple of Ju uh, Jupiter is located. Um, and it's also interesting that <clears throat> this name persists in the east. Aelia, uh, because in Arabic, uh, the, the traditional word for Jerusalem is Ilya, Ilya, sorry. Uh, and Ilya means, is, is a, of course, uh, derived from the Roman word Aelia. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term still, you know, traditionally used in classical Islamic texts where Jerusalem is known as Ilya. Um, and um, this, this name, like I said, persists and what it also does is that it radically changes um, the physical layout of the city. So what we see today when we go visiting Jerusalem is uh, Aelia Capitolina. It's not the city of, um, you know, that Jesus, the physical Jesus uh, city that Jesus might have known. All those buildings, of course, were destroyed and rebuilt much, much later. Uh, and of course, rebuilt through the effort of Saint Helena, uh, whom we might want to talk about later or maybe a little bit now or whatever. Uh, so that's very briefly, that's what Aelia Capitolina becomes. And more importantly, um, the Romans, just to make sure, ban all Jews from coming to Aelia Capitolina. It becomes a thoroughly, quote unquote, pagan city. Um, Christians, of course, are allowed to stay, and they do stay uh, when, they, when they differentiate completely from the Hebrew faith. But until the fourth, fifth century, Jews are not allowed to enter that area at all. Did they have, um, uh, in my memory, it's floating around, did they have a single day or something that the Romans would let them in or some minor festival? Or that was no. later times? That was later. that was later times, yeah, that was later. This, is happen this happens when, uh, when um, uh, Constantine renames the city back to its original name, and then slowly the, the Jews are rehabilitated into the area. Uh, this is much later, but as for the next 200 years, no, they're not allowed. And this is where the, the concept of the diaspora of the Jewish people uh, becomes established, because then they basically transport these people throughout their empire and settle them in settlements uh, throughout uh, Roman cities. <clears throat> also, something to keep in mind as we, you know, we put our discussion of, of these, the development of these ideas within the Hebrews, within the context of, of Rome, uh, something that occurs to me now, going back to my research about Antioch or previous um, urban treatment that we've done, is the fact that we, we have to put the Roman Empire within the larger context of things. We very often... Um, <laughs> Both, both uh, Catholics and Protestants, you know, we, we tend to see the history of the church within only within the bubble of the Roman Empire. But do keep in mind that as all of this renaming and these Sicarii revolts and these alleged messiahs and so forth are happening, there's a, a giant Persian Empire that's that's you know not very far away and uh, sometimes quite close, you know, with cities like Palmyra and things like that. Um, 
So always we need to put the context of, of things even in a larger world than just the Romans. Exactly. Maybe we'll do a show on the Persian Empire and Christianity within the Persian Empire. It's a very fascinating and interesting topic that very few people know about, uh, unfortunately. So maybe we'll spend some time, uh, at, you know, and later on <clears throat> looking particularly at Christianity outside the Roman world, uh, because um, it, it happens and, it, and it, it, you know, it exists and it flourishes for a very, very long time. <laughs> And one thing that strikes me as as we move along here, and maybe we can turn to the bishops and, and our discussion of Eusebius, um, one of the things, I suppose an advantage actually, of, of these um, rocky events in Jerusalem is that by that severing of Jerusalem, where even within the, the church structure, Jerusalem is a patriarch it uh it's a patriarchal see but it's it's largely out of honor it's not it's not like um we'll say um administrative reality like rome or out of a scholastic or missionary merit such as alexandria or antioch respectively but rather out of an honor towards the the historical significance but what this uh seems to create for me in in later church history is it does not create a dynamic just to make reference to islam of a type of racial dynamic um because of that severing you don't have you know the hebrews um having some type of higher caste or something within the church which you do if you if you muck about islam long enough you realize there's a certain cultural chauvinism for for arabs um and you you don't have the opportunity after um, Barkovka or or whatever his last his cognomen might be you don't have that anymore so it does free up Christianity from that um, that uh, difficulty or that that uh, tension. I think yeah you're right and I think after um, after the revolt after 135 and when after the city is completely uh, remodeled. Um, what you have is um, a Christianity that is no longer rooted in space and time. Uh, it's actually universal. So you have a universalizing tendency that takes over the concept of what the faith is. Uh, it no longer needs Jerusalem, the physical you know, city. It can be fine um, you know, in, in Gaul, in Britain, um, you know, in the Persian Empire, in Central Asia, uh, in Central, you know, uh, uh, Western China, uh, it's it's fine in all those places, and it's and given the universality of its uh, faith, uh, the communication line between all these traditions is very strong. Uh, we think uh, Christianity is simply Paul, and that's it. The West in the Western uh, tradition, but Christianity is just as large and just as vibrant in the East uh, through its own traditions, <clears throat> where Paul never ventures but Christianity has already reached um, and <clears throat> it flourishes. So uh, Christianity becomes no longer a place-centered uh, religion, like all actually pagan religions are, they're very place-centered and even early, uh, even the Hebrew faith is, used to be uh, <clears throat> place-centered, uh, but Christianity becomes this universalizing uh, world religion, uh, as we might call it, uh, a play, uh, you know, a religion that is open, uh, that is, doable um, in any place and does not need a physical locality in order to justify what it is. <clears throat> uh, Second Temple Jerusalem, sorry, Second Temple uh, Judaism needed the temple 
in Jerusalem in order to justify what it was. Once that was gone, the justification of the faith disappeared. And and basically, you know, uh, Judaism is floundering. It's basically on the way out. Um, it's only much later that it's revived, uh, which we can talk about some other time. We've discussed it briefly other, you know, later, earlier, I should say. Um, so Christianity, the new mindset that we talked about in the first part is now taken over. It's no longer, it's a new way of thinking. It's no longer the old way of thinking of, about religion and faith. It's a new way of thinking about religion and faith. And by the way, um, I'm speaking from uh, the, the Judaized Christianity capital of the world known as America. Um, that's why people, you don't need to refer to God as Yahweh or Yahweh. And that's why you don't have to call Christ Yeshua or Yahusha. People try to revive this stuff. There's a very deliberate reason that all these translations are permitted. It's not that, oh, oh, you know, the church lost the real names and it lost, you know, there's a real, it's that universalizing of that Catholic um, broadly understood, you know, that concept of revelation. That's why you can have, um, you know, liturgical translations in Latin or in, in whatever English. Um, that's why you can translate the you know the name of Christ in different languages, and and you don't need those hangups that you that people continually try to revive in this country at least. That's right, uh, because what's going on is that uh, Christianity um, is not a, a particularizing religion; uh, it's a universalizing religion, and I think <clears throat> this idea of expansion is what's going to be the dynamic. Um, that's going to drive the faith into all parts of the world. Um, and <clears throat> what you mentioned about these various efforts to go back to the roots of Christianity, to go back to the way things were, and that silly narrative of how this was lost or stolen or forgotten uh, by you know the hierarchy or by the institution, and it's going to be up to this some you know guy who's just read a couple of books is now going to revolutionize everything by going back to the roots. Um, <clears throat> it may appeal to a certain type of mentality, but it doesn't really mean uh, that, or it doesn't really um, uh, uh, give any kind of justification to the faith uh, that it, it doesn't otherwise have. I.e., just because you want to call Jesus. Um, uh, you know, um, Yeshua or whatever, uh, you know, uh, doesn't uh, change anything. It's simply, you know, <clears throat> another decoration on the Christmas tree. Whether that, you know, decoration is up or down doesn't really matter to, um, uh, to the faith, i.e. these are not theological or ideas that are being introduced that are somehow going to undermine, revolutionize, change the faith system. These are simply, um, <clears throat> amuse de bouche, as they say in French, you know, something to make your mouth happy, something that makes you, it makes you feel good, you know, uh, it's nothing more than that. So this is how I see these various efforts by these various people to, you know, talk about Yahweh and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> we don't even know if that's the correct way of saying it, by the way, uh, because Hebrew doesn't really have the vowels, so it's really difficult to, to pronounce whatever that word was. Um, so um, you rightly point out that these various efforts by various people is also actually the result of this history. And I think this is something we yeah. have to be mindful of, 
uh, it is the result of this very important and interesting history that happened. <clears throat> that, and these are the consequences that we're still seeing and that we're still understanding and still grappling with uh, in, in our own ways. And as we turn towards Eusebius, we do have a, and we, so this is the knife's edge or the, or the, the, the tension uh, that we, we have to acknowledge here um, as we, and we set up for next month as well. Um, Christianity has this incarnational and physical aspect as well. And part of that um, rooting is also in time. So, Dr. Das, as we consider the church in Jerusalem, which survives uh, even with the great tribulations of, of um, Romans and Sicarii and this, that, and the other, um, who is Eusebius? What is his intention of, of the ecclesiastical history? And how does he describe the development of the church in Jerusalem? Yes, uh, Eusebius, um, you know, I would, I would classify him as a Christian historian who is interested in going through all the documents uh, that he can uncover in order to write a history of um, what is happening in this place, i.e. Jerusalem. Um, and he gets into other ones as well, but for us, he talks about Jerusalem, but he's drawing upon various traditions um, that exist, um, and he's using those traditions to uh, understand what is going on in, in Jerusalem. Um, and um, one of the main ones that he draws upon is um, uh, Hegesippus, and Hegesippus lives in the second century. Uh, we're not really sure of his dates. Um, and through Hegesippus, we know that he is telling us that Jerusalem had a series of bishops. <clears throat> Unfortunately, he doesn't give us dates. He only gives us reference points through various emperors, Roman emperors. We don't really have all the dates, uh, but he does begin importantly with uh, the figure that we've already talked about, which is James the Just. Uh, now we have to be really careful here. Uh, it's not the same person as uh, uh, James the Apostle, uh, who is also known as James the Less, uh, <clears throat> uh, because the two are not the same. James the Just, the first Bishop of Jerusalem, is known commonly known as the brother of Jesus or the cousin of Jesus. Um, and he is uh, killed by, um, you know, the um, uh, Jewish authorities, for lack of a better term, in Jerusalem because he doesn't uh, speak out strongly enough about defending the Jewish faith from the incursion of Christianity because they don't think he's Christian, but he is Christian. Um, and he is, of course, the brother of Jesus or the cousin of Jesus. And he's martyred uh, by being thrown down the building, stoned, and then finished off with a big club uh, to the head. Uh, he's the first uh, uh, bishop. After that is uh, Simeon uh, that we that you know, Eusebius talks about. Uh, Simeon, of course, we don't really know about him, but he was probably another relative of Jesus's uh, that uh, became the second bishop of Jerusalem. And through that, we have then, uh, you know, something like uh, 15 um, uh, in the first list. <clears throat> I think there's three lists of, of these bishops. In total, I think there are 30 bishops listed uh, until um, I think about 299. Uh, this is when the deal, uh, I think the last bishop mentioned is Herman, um, um, H-E-R-M-O-N, <clears throat> and he is um, 
just at the time of the Diocletian persecutions, which is in 299 uh, AD. <clears throat> and after that, um, after this important date of 299, the importance of Jerusalem disappears, i.e. other cities now take over, as we've mentioned and as we've discussed uh, in other shows, <clears throat> Antioch, Alexandria, and eventually, of course, Rome. Um, and um, so the last person, last important uh, bishop uh, of the place of Jerusalem is, uh, is Hermon. Uh, he's around 299 AD. We, again, we're not sure of these dates. And through these bishops, these various uh, line of bishops, and these were, of course, known as people who sat on the seat of James the Just, i.e. <clears throat> there was this tradition, um, as with all bishops, of someone going back to the original uh, laying on, through the laying on of hands, the original uh, first bishop um, that was somehow associated with the disciples or with the apostles uh, or through family connections with Jesus himself. Um, so James the Just uh, becomes the, the focal point of this whole movement, uh, or the, I should say the Church of Jerusalem. And once that focal point eventually disappears uh, with the history, the importance of Jerusalem itself becomes sidelined. It becomes, as you said, mentioned earlier on, um, you know, a, a place that is revered for being the birthplace and, you know, place where Jesus walked and so forth and taught, as opposed to the center of any kind of um, <clears throat> ecclesiastical uh, hierarchy or ecclesiastical history. Now Eusebius, very quickly getting back to him, is important because what he does is that he um, not only gives us the history of all of Jerusalem, but he contextualizes it. <clears throat> so what I've been telling you is actually a summary of Eusebius's uh, report to us uh, in his chronicle. He tells us all these things uh, and this is how we know uh, what it is, uh, what happened there. And more importantly, I think this is something rather interesting, is because all of these bishops <clears throat> are what we would call uh, uh, Jewish Christians. These are the Hebrew Christians that became Christians within the confines of that city, and therefore uh, had that tradition of coming out of the Hebrew faith into Christian, uh, into the Christian faith. Um, Whereas elsewhere, this is not going to be the case. There's going to be the non-Hebrews that are going to dominate uh, Christianity from, that, from this time period onwards. So after 299, we have a diminishing <clears throat> of uh, the Hebrew presence, let's put, that, put it that way, in Christianity, um, a diminishing of that and the emergence of the universal, universalizing um, pr uh, principle of Christianity, which is other people can now become uh, bishops as well in other parts of the world who are not um, ethnically Hebrew, uh, just you know, uh, uh, to put it in this in these terms. Um, so this context then that uh, Eusebius provides is very important because first of all, it gives us a history of the tradition of what happens in the city, uh, the kinds of uh, you know things that are discussed. For example, one of the most important ones was um, in the second century, um, you know, in the Palestinian uh, synod where um, you know the, the, the date of, of Easter was established as to when Easter should happen. And the Church of Jerusalem has a very fundamental role to play in this, uh, in this decision of when Easter should fall. Because <clears throat> I think it's Pope Victor um, uh, who says, well, East, you know, you can, Easter can be any time uh, you like. You know, whenever the date it falls on that date, it can be in the summer, in the winter, whenever. 
and people are saying, well, no, wait a minute. Easter has to be linked to, to Sunday because Sunday is Resurrection Day. And we can't simply just, you know, align Easter to any old day uh, of the week. It has to be that tradition. Um, uh, and this is, uh, what, what do they call it? Um, um, quattrodeciminism, uh, which is, you know, that it has to be on the 14th day of the Hebrew calendar. Uh, that is when uh, the, the Easter should be. It shouldn't be any old day. Um, and of course, Victor was admonished, and then he, as a, as the Pope, uh, and he took back his word and said, sorry, okay, right, you guys are right, I'm wrong. Uh, it should be this, because he was excommunicating everyone who was not doing it this way. He was saying, sorry, you know, uh, and then finally he apologized and retracted. Um, so uh, the Church of Jerusalem has a very fundamental role to play in this. Um, so why we have Easter today <clears throat> on the 14th day of the Hebrew calendar and always on a Sunday is because of the Church of Jerusalem or the center uh, that is Jerusalem at this time for Christianity. <clears throat> And as we prepare our closing remarks for myself, one of the things that I think I come circling full around to where we started in our last episode about the growth of spirituality and the, the spiritualization of the concept of Jerusalem and Zion and then and then uh, ultimately to Christ and, and take it from there. One of the things I find so interesting is um, as we consider the, the later the later history of Jerusalem is as regards our footprints here, is that the likes of St. Jerome will set up shop there. And we, we tend to think his feast day, his memorials uh, a couple of weeks out now, uh, we tend to associate him maybe with scholarship or with the Bible, but he was also a monastic and started certain monastic communities. So I find it very interesting that as we conclude this, you know, this treatment of Jerusalem, which is, uh, you know, it will not go on to be this massive sea like Constantinople or Alexandria or whatever, much less Rome. But it does, it continues that that a spiritual tradition and, and in its own way, a continuation and a deepening of the the concept of the holy city and uh, you know, but now in the monastic context of one's eternal life and 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 one you know one's relationship to the kingdom internally. So I I find that um, quite quite interesting and and a great continuation of that trend amongst you know that city. Exactly, and uh, you know, just to 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 um, you know summarize or to you know end it uh, end our discussion. Uh, after uh, 299, after the Diocletian uh, persecutions, and this you know brings home your point that you're making with uh, Saint Jerome, um, and especially after 324 AD, um, Jerusalem becomes a Christian-only city. <clears throat> Only Christians settle there uh, because they have uh, you know a link to this place. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, up to this point, the Jews are not still allowed to settle there. Um, and so only Christians <clears throat> are basically are the majority population of this area. Um, and this is only going to be uh, much later that the Jews return to, to, to Jerusalem, uh, uh, you know, as, as a people and so forth. But up to this point, <clears throat> it's, a heavy, it's a heavily or actually only Christian, uh, Christian only city. It's not, you know, a, you know, it's not a multicultural place, as we might say. Uh, it's, it's a city where... Um, perhaps intentionally, perhaps not, but anyway, historically, <clears throat> it becomes a very, um, uh, a, a city that is solely Christian, which is 
something unique in the Roman world, uh, where you still have a continuing blend of paganism and Christianity. But by 324, it's a heavily settled, it's a city heavily settled by Christians and Christians alone. <clears throat> Very good. Well, next recording, next episode, we're going to carry this self-same discussion about Jerusalem and its physicality and that aspect, that, which relates itself to the Incarnation. We're going to carry that on with a discussion of St. Helena and Constantine and, you know, touching on uh, chords we've played before and topics we've come across, you know, Nicaea and and this rapprochement or this realignment as regards the state and, and all sorts of things, but also getting into a lot of the themes we've hit today as well, the physicality versus the spirituality and so forth. Um, Dr. Das, tell us about what we can read in the Postal this month and where we can find your work at. Yes, uh, thepostal.com is the best place. Uh, I encourage people to come and come by and uh, read some of the very interesting articles. Um, one of the articles that's quite interesting is a criticism of modernity uh, by um, a, a South American philosopher uh, by the name of Nicholas Davila. Um, and it's a very interesting article because Nicholas Davila was a very interesting thinker uh, <clears throat> in that he only wrote short aphorisms, like little sayings. Um, and those are quite interesting as to, uh, you know, what uh, the world that we live in is all about today. So I encourage people to just, you know, come out and take a look at that. Uh, it, this will be in our October uh, issue coming up. <clears throat> Excellent. And as regards my work with the Pakistastasis and Institute of the Humanities, it is early yet, but if you're considering enrolling either in person or for online courses, Please check out, first of all, abakistastasisinstitute.wordpress.com and see our offerings, whether that's the three-year undergraduate course, uh, curriculum, uh, course of study, or whether it's the pickup classes, or even uh, regarding certain presentations and lectures if, if you're in charge of that for a library or a bookstore or something. So that can all be had at abakistastasisinstitute.wordpress.com including contact info. If you are interested in contacting Dr. Das or myself about this series, your thoughts and impressions, you're more than welcome to put those in the description of this video on BitChute and YouTube. But also we have an email for maybe more uh, developed correspondence and that is christianhistoryandideas at gmail.com. And we welcome your show tips and suggestions and uh, this sort of thing. We're open to interviews. If you have an appropriate topic you'd like to chime in about, we can we can develop such a presentation with you. And uh, with that, Dr. Doss, thank you for your expertise. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to be here. And thank you, viewers, for watching. We'll see you next time.